are we? Good. Happy Palm Sunday to you. So good to see you all. I uh, had a little bit of a difficult day this week. A day I'd been dreading for a while. It was the day I bought a minivan. And uh, some of you men know what that feels like when you get to that point. And kind of still think of myself as like a young punk rocker. And now I have a minivan. So appreciate your prayers as we navigate this difficult time. But i um, so glad to see you all. We uh, are in uh, the season of Lent, as you know, and it's a season that Christians have set aside for many, many years now to prepare to celebrate Easter. And so uh, Lent is to Easter what Advent is to Christmas, if that makes sense, a season of preparing our hearts uh, as we follow the story of Jesus as a church together. And so we follow this thing called the church calendar. Um, which many different traditions of Christians for centuries have followed, and it's basically a way of measuring time according to the story of Christ. And so it started in November with the season of Advent, anticipating uh, Jesus' birth, and then Christmas, and then we go into Lent, uh, and this weekend then we get to uh, Good Friday and to Easter Sunday, and then after that there's this period of 40 days um, that ends with Pentecost. And so the church calendar kind of goes from the end of November to the beginning of June. And uh, we, <clears throat> we're following that uh, along with lots of other Christians around the globe. And um, it's, uh, it's kind of, you know, there's lots of ways you can measure time according to seasons and months. You can still, like, use, you know, regular months. and Like, if you have a dentist appointment or something, you're not like, that's the second Wednesday of Advent? Or that, that's not going to work very well. But within our organized life as a church, it's a really fun and beautiful way of kind of uh, walking through the story of Christ together. So today, we find ourselves at Palm Sunday. And then, like I said, uh, this weekend will be Good Friday and Easter Sunday. There's a place in Ecclesiastes that you might remember from a uh, 60s song that says that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Uh, there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. And um, Good Friday is obviously a time to weep and a time to mourn. It's a time to solemnly remember um, Jesus' suffering and death on our behalf. And so we're going to invite you to come and uh, participate in a Good Friday service with us this Friday at the Tower Theater. And um, it'll be a really unique uh, Good Friday service in that we're kind of building it around the Passover experience. We have a guest speaker coming in who is a Jewish Christian and um, one, of, one of the nation's leader, leading thinkers in the relationship between um, Judaism and Christianity and helping us understand the story of Jesus within the context of the story of Judaism. And so um, it's actually going to be a participatory experience where we'll share together elements of the Passover dinner um, and uh, we'll actually be eating and drinking in the, in the tower that night. And so there'll be child care for the little, little ones, um, but kind of elementary and up, um, it's designed to be an experience that they can be in there with us for. And so um, hope that you'll, you'll make it out on Friday night. And then Easter Sunday is a time to laugh and a time to dance and a time to celebrate as much as we white Bendites do those kinds of things. Um, but we, uh, I'm just saying as a personal favor, why don't you come happy next Sunday? Because we'll be celebrating the, uh, the foundational story of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so it'll be uh, a time to celebrate. 
And um, we want to encourage you to invite friends or neighbors or family members that might want to come participate in our celebration that day. And uh, we'll just do one service here at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. So we've got lots of room and uh, love to have a huge crowd celebrating that day. One service means that we uh, need extra help in Antioch Kids that morning. Typically, we've done a couple services on holidays in order for people to be able to serve one service and attend one service, but we're just doing one this year, and so we need some extra help. Specifically, we need 25 people that would be willing to volunteer uh, to help with Antioch kids during the service next weekend. And we understand that's something of a sacrifice. You're going to want to be in here. But, um, but it's part of being a family, and it's part of a way that we can uh, serve the greater body and our friends and neighbors and the parents that, that uh, bring their kids here every week. And so what I've got here, this is a clipboard. You may remember these. Um, it's like an iPad, but it's made out of wood and uh, paper. And I don't think Antioch usually does this kind of thing, but we're going to do it. Um, There's 25 spots that need to be filled today, and I'm going to pass this around, and you're going to write your name and your email and your phone number until we get to 25, and if we don't get there, we'll pass it around again. (laughs) So um, I know that you you understand that, and we'll... uh, We'll fill them. Actually, it looks like we've already got five spots filled. So if you fill out this info, Linda will shoot you an email tomorrow. And of course, in order to work with kids, you're going to need to be background checked and all that to keep them real safe. But um, she'll get you signed up if you haven't gone through it. So I need 20 good Christians that would be willing to do this. So hey, look at this. It's like an altar call. This is awesome. God bless you, brother. Thanks, Justin. All right, don't make me center around twice. I'll feel, I'll feel lame. It would be funny, but Justin's on it. Thanks, man. All right, why don't you get out a Bible and turn to the passage that Mariah just read for us, Matthew chapter 21, as we come into uh, Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is the beginning of what we know as Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' life before um, his death. And... Uh, <clears throat> Christians all around the world today are spending time in this story and um, seeking to understand what was happening on that, uh, on that day so many years ago and uh, what it might mean for us today. So the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, um, on one hand, its significance is conveyed in the fact that all four gospel accounts include a, a Palm Sunday narrative. All four gospel writers hold it up as a significant part of this story. And the truth is that if you grew up in church, uh, you recognize these branches that we have down here in front. And maybe your church did some sort of thing with kids running up and down the aisles with palm branches. And maybe you remember some flannel graph related to this whole story. But um, but the truth is, it's actually a story that we're kind of like... it's. I guess that seems like a big deal, but I'm not really sure why, right? But the fact that all four gospel writers include it uh, means that we should pay extra uh, attention to it. And so let me just give you a little bit of the setting for the story that Mariah read. And the setting is, of course, the great city of Jerusalem, which is really the cultural, political, and religious capital of uh, the Hebrew world. And it was a... uh, a time where the Jewish people, the Israelites, were living under Roman occupation within their own country. 
And so for many, many years now, the Roman Empire had taken over uh, the Jewish people, Jewish land, and allowed the Jews to continue to live there and celebrate some of their customs and religious feasts. Um, But politically, Rome was in control. And for many years, God's people had been awaiting the promised one, the Messiah, God's sent king, who would come to liberate them from captivity. And um, they had all these ancient prophecies from what we call the Old Testament, uh, these promises of God that one day, one day he was going to send a king who was going to come and rescue and redeem his people out of slavery, out of occupation. One day he was going to restore Israel to power over their own land, that the glory days would be relived and things would be back as they were supposed to be. And so for uh, those Jews that had been paying attention, they were constantly sort of looking around and going, maybe, maybe this is God's new king, or maybe this is God's new king. Maybe our liberator is finally here, and they're waiting and watching and hoping constantly. Now, Jesus has been on the scene for three years now. And he's been, as we know, traveling around some of the small, mostly rural villages surrounding Jerusalem. And he's been teaching, and he's been uh, making these disciples. He's been um, healing people of sicknesses. He's been casting out demons. He's been performing miracles. And as we know, there's starting to be a little bit of a buzz around Jesus, uh, that people are starting to pay attention. And when he shows up to speak, oftentimes crowds of thousands of people would come to be around him and to hear what he said and to receive some of his, uh, his miracles and that sort of thing. And so people are starting to suspect that maybe this prophet from Nazareth, maybe this Jesus is actually God's sent king. Maybe he's the one we've been waiting for who's going to deliver us from the oppression of Rome. Okay, so that's where we are. Um, in terms of the time, we know that this is leading up to the week of Passover, the Passover feast, which of course is one of the main feasts that the Jewish people would observe, um, commemorating when God had freed them miraculously from slavery in Egypt. And so every year at Passover, Jews from all over the land would make essentially a pilgrimage to the central city of Jerusalem. And they would come there to observe the Passover together. And so we think there were probably only about 50,000 people living in the city of Jerusalem at this time. But during Passover, there would be at least 200,000 people in the city. Okay, so this small but significant town during this week is filled with people. The streets are packed, all the hotel rooms are booked, that sort of thing. And there's kind of this sense of buzz, this sense of anticipation. And specifically this year, there's news that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Like this guy who might be our king is going to show up this year. And maybe Maybe, just maybe, he's the one we're waiting for. And so there's this sense of anticipation. People are spreading rumors, starting to say, did you hear? I think Jesus is coming. It's essentially uh, 
the, uh, the conventions, right, that, the, that each of our political party holds each time there's an election, right? If you followed any of that stuff, there's this like three-day convention where there's all this buzz. People from that party travel from all over the country. They cram into an arena, and for three days, there's inspirational speakers, and there's videos, and there's bands that play, and the whole thing kind of culminates on the final night when that candidate for presidency is announced. He, gives his, he or she gives their speech, you know, that whole thing. And it's, it's really that same kind of scene, that kind of fanatic energy. Um, that's what's happening on the streets of Jerusalem amongst the Jews during this season of Passover. And Jesus seems to be in on the whole thing. And this is somewhat surprising, even as I was studying and, and, and thinking through this passage this week, it actually is kind of interesting that as there's this big uh, unrolling of the announcement of essentially Jesus' candidacy to be king, um, he seems to be in on it. Like, we're told that he tells his disciples here in chapter 21 to go and to start making some arrangements. He tells them to pick up this, this donkey, and it's kind of the sense that he's going, this isn't going to happen to me, but I'm actually setting this up. And he's kind of using his disciples as his campaign managers to, to kind of set the stage for for his announcement. And the weird thing about it is that if you know Jesus' kind of style and ministry up until then, it's almost like he's been wanting to stay underground, right? He's constantly withdrawing from the crowds. And different villages that he visits are asking him, pleading with him, stay with us, stay longer. And he kind of will take off and move on to the next crowd. At one point, uh, a group of people wanted to anoint him as king, and he, he shot him down and said, it's not my time yet. And so throughout his whole ministry, Jesus has kind of resisted the crowd, resisted that public spotlight in many ways, but apparently now his time has come. And so why does Jesus choose this moment to announce his candidacy as king of the Jews? There's something else happening that we probably don't know about, and we don't know this for sure, But quite a few scholars of the ancient Near East think that there was probably another triumphal entry happening during that week, possibly even on the same day or even at the exact same time. So every year, during this time, as an extra 150 or 200,000 Jews ascend into Jerusalem, the Roman governor of Judea would also make the trip to Jerusalem. And he lived in a palace on the sea in Caesarea, and he would make this trip from the coast up into Jerusalem, um, and essentially he would do it to remind the Jews that, yeah, you can have your Passover feast, but don't get any wild ideas. Rome is still in charge. The Romans would say, yeah, you can commemorate, you know, that day of long, long time ago when you escaped from Egypt, but don't go thinking something like that's going to happen again. And so this Roman governor, who at the time of Jesus is a guy we know by the name of Pilate, would make this grand triumphal entry as he travels from Caesarea and he enters into Jerusalem. And he would essentially have this parade rolling out and announcing his rule and reign over the Jews. And one scholar describes Pilate's entry like this. 
It's a visual panoply of imperial power. Cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on metal and gold, sounds, the marching of feet, the creaking of leather, the clinking of bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust, the eyes on the silent onlookers, some curious, some in awe, some resentful. And so you kind of catch a sense of the scene. This was a grand entrance. This was a display of wealth and power and military strength. Pilate would come into the city from the west and he would be riding upon an armored war horse with a huge entourage of of, of soldiers and the crowds would gather. Of course they would. Now some of them would cheer for for this great ruler Some would probably boo or hiss, but nobody could ignore the way this Roman governor would enter into the city of Jerusalem. So that triumphal entry is most likely happening in this same city at this same time. And then we have this other entry, this other king, this son of a blue-collar carpenter, this homeless rabbi from the podunk town of Nazareth making his way into the big city. Pilate comes from the west, from Caesarea, Caesar town. But Jesus comes into the city from the east. From the direction nobody was expecting him to come. It's essentially rolling up to the convention in the back parking lot when there's this whole red carpet set out, the press is there with their cameras, the whole world is watching for this candidate to make their grand arrival, and Jesus comes in from the east. And nobody would have expected that. And instead of this huge entourage of trained, disciplined, deadly soldiers, Jesus has this group of ragtag fishermen kind of just stumbling along behind him. And instead of this stunning thoroughbred war horse, Jesus comes riding in from the east on this stupid little Eeyore donkey with her colt following alongside. And instead of flaunting wealth and power, Luke's account of Palm Sunday actually tells us that Jesus is crying as he rides into Jerusalem. And so now we start to see what a ridiculous scene this actually is. In fact, some scholars would go so far as to say that Jesus is actually making a mockery of this whole event. Like showing up to the Oscars on a unicycle with no pants or something like that, just saying, you guys take yourselves way too seriously. This is all a joke. That's how some people think of it. But either way, this scene is of this powerless, vulnerable, almost laughable king showing up in a way that nobody expected. And what's crazy is it seems this is exactly what Jesus had in mind. It's not just that he didn't have the resources to pull together a proper entry. It's like he architected this whole thing 
on purpose. One scholar writes, what we often call the triumphal entry was actually an anti-imperial, anti-triumphal one. A deliberate lampoon of the conquering emperor entering a city on a horseback through gates opened in abject submission. So interesting that when Jesus chooses to go public, this is how he does it. Why does he do it? We're told on one hand that some of what he does was simply to fulfill the prophecies that had been written about him. We're told that God's people had a prophecy from the prophet Jeremiah that God's king was going to arrive riding a donkey in her colt. And so we're told there in verse 4 and 5 that this is part of what's going on. And so for those Jews that were paying close attention, although this looks like foolishness to the world, they're going, wait a minute, that's a colt. That's a donkey in her colt. So on one hand, God is signaling to his people yet that, yeah, this isn't probably quite what you expected, but this is my guy. But it also seems like there's something else going on here. We're told that some of this clown show was to fulfill prophecy, but there's something else going on here. See, the Jews were expecting a political king. Our closest thing would be an actual president that would sit in the Oval Office, in the White House, in Washington, D.C. We We uh, don't really have a category for that, but that's essentially what they were expecting. Somebody that would rise to power and would go square off with Pilate and actually assume a position of political power over Israel once again. They were looking for really a modern-day Moses, especially in the season of Passover as that story's on their mind, as Moses confronts Pharaoh and is able to liberate God's people from Egypt. That's what they're looking for a great, powerful political king, but instead they get this crying guy on a donkey and this parade of misfits following behind him. What's Jesus doing? Well, he's announcing his kingship, but he's doing it in a way that makes it known that he's not going to be the kind of king everyone expected. He had said things like this throughout his entire ministry. He was constantly teaching and preaching about this thing called the kingdom of God in a way that many people had a hard time understanding what he was talking about. But he would say things really directly like, my kingdom is not of this world. So yeah, I am God's chosen one. I am going to be your king. But I'm not going to do it constrained to the structures and systems of power that control the world. I'm not going to move into the White House. I'm not going to sit in the Oval Office. My kingdom is not of this world. I'm going to be king in a way you can't even imagine. I'm going to do something totally new, totally different. And so... Jesus, it almost seems, he's like set this whole thing up to be disorienting, to contribute to the confusion. That on, yes, one hand, I'm fulfilling prophecy, I'm riding the donkey, and all these things that the prophets have said would be true about me are true about me, so yes, I am the king you've been waiting for, but no, I'm not going to be the kind of king you thought I was going to be. 
And so he creates this sense of disorientation and confusion among the crowd. So how does the crowd respond? Well, it seems like a whole bunch of them understood what was going on. A whole bunch of them saw this king right in from the east, and they recognized this is God's man. And they were told that they took off their coats, their outer cloaks, and they laid them down on the road, essentially making their own red carpet. And we're told that they took up these palm branches and they were waving them in the air, kind of in a celebratory way, and then also laying those down on the ground. The symbolism of the palm branch ties into the language of the Psalms, which essentially says uh, in many different passages that uh, all of creation, then even the non-human parts of God's creation, the trees and the rocks and the rivers and the mountains, all praise and recognize God as creator and redeemer. That all of creation is groaning, waiting for, for God sent one to come and make all things new. That this gospel or this kingdom isn't just going to be the king uh, of the Jews, but the king of all creation. Right? And so we're told in one, one of the accounts that uh, the people were being silenced by the Pharisees. And, and uh, the Pharisees said, you know, keep it down. You don't know what you're saying. And Jesus says, if they, if they quit praising me, the rocks will cry out, right? It's the idea that this is way, way bigger than we thought. And so they're spreading their palm branches out. They're laying their cloaks down. They're rolling out the red carpet. And they're, we're, they're told, we're told in verse 9, they're praising God, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They're worshiping him. They're declaring their praise, their adoration, their trust, their hope in, in this coming king. Hosanna simply means save or save now. Like the time has come. We've been waiting for this for years and years, generations and generations. Save now, God. Liberate us now. Restore our kingdom, our nation now. Hosanna, save, king. Help us. And they're expressing their hope, their confidence that this is the one they've been waiting for. So a big chunk of people there, at least that day, seem to be tuned in to what's going on in this story. But then there's this much, much larger crowd around the, uh, the parade. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. And they seem angry, some of them. And some of them are probably confused. And some of them are probably disappointed. And Matthew sums up the city's response in verse 10 when he said, the whole city was stirred, and this is the question they asked. Who is this? This is the king? This is the one you guys are waiting for? This crying carpenter on a donkey? Who is this? And again, that sense of confusion or disorientation. Which seems to be exactly what Jesus was going for. Now there's a lot going on here politically. And I won't spend a lot of time on that. But on one hand, it's not just that Jesus wasn't going to be 
the kind of political ruler or king that they were expecting. It's that he was going to be so much more than that. So it's not that his kingdom was smaller than politics. It's that it was way, way bigger. That Jesus was announcing his government was going to touch down on earth. That God's kingdom was going to be, it was going to be here. It was going to show up in our world. We get uncomfortable when we talk about Jesus and politics and Christianity and, and, uh, and all the political stuff that's going on in the world. And what I would simply just say before we move on is the idea that Jesus <clears throat> refuses to be boxed into any of the world's political systems, doesn't he? And it's not that none of that has anything to do with him, but he says, I'm not going to be part of your party on the right or left or the middle or wherever you are, my kingdom is from another world. But it has something to do with this world. Now, if you want to know what Jesus' Jesus politics are, you read the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts off by talking about who's blessed in his kingdom. And you start to see, yeah, this doesn't sound anything like the political rhetoric of their day or of ours. It's something totally else. And so he's making a profound political statement. His kingdom isn't going to be boxed into any of our systems or parties. But there's also something else going on here, more of a personal challenge, I would say. And again, Jesus seems comfortable confusing people. He seems comfortable leaving people going, wait, what? What did he just say? What's he talking about? He's constantly speaking in parables, right? And speaking about things that leave the disciples and others scratching their heads. By the way, if you read the Bible and specifically read the teachings of Jesus and somehow sometimes go, I have no idea what this means, that's okay. That's probably how the first disciples felt as well. Right? This, I don't know what that means. This is confusing. That's all right. That means you're doing it right. Okay? Um, I find it incredibly comf- comforting. But throughout Jesus' ministry, I would argue that he seems to be somewhat concerned that people are hanging around him for the wrong reasons. Jesus is constantly upping the ante, so to speak, or making it more difficult to follow him. When somebody starts drawing close to him and wanting to go where he's going, he doesn't say, oh yeah, come on. He constantly is raising the bar, turning up the heat. When a crowd goes, hey, Jesus made... uh, a whole bunch of, you know, a few little loaves and a few little fishes into a feast for thousands. I'm going to follow him. Jesus goes, cool, but just so you know, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. Right? It's not great PR, like if you're trying to, you know, energize a fan base. He's going, just so you know, this is not what you think. This is not what you think. In fact, just in the couple stories before, there's this interesting thing that goes down. Read with me in Matthew chapter 20, um, starting in verse 20. 
Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, two of Jesus' disciples, came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Okay, so again, they're thinking within the political structures of the day. And to sit at the right right and left of this emerging king would be, can we have these two prominent places? Can you be, one be your vice president and the other be your secretary of state? And Jesus says, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything about my kingdom. Why was Jesus crying as he rides the donkey that day? We don't, we're not told exactly why. But we know that he knows that this inauguration ceremony is going to be the beginning of the end for him. We know that he knows that Rome isn't going to respond well to having their governor mocked. We know that he knows that this isn't going to go over well with the crowd of Jews who aren't paying close attention. In many ways, Palm Sunday is the beginning of Jesus giving himself up to be arrested, unfairly tried, beaten, tortured, and executed. He shows up in Jerusalem where this whole thing is going to go down. And in part, just like any human, when you step in to the path that would lead to your death, that would be something to cry about. And what's crazy is that Jesus is enthroned king, but his throne isn't an oval office or or something that they would have pictured. His throne is a cross, isn't it? That's his moment of glory when he is literally lifted up before the eyes of the watching world. That's the moment where his kingdom is made visible, where the nature of his kingdom, what he is like, is revealed for everyone to see. Oh yeah, this kingdom is not of this world. Turn a few more chapters to the right, Matthew 27. Jesus has now been betrayed, arrested. He's been beaten and mocked. And they hang him on a cross. And they do give him a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. And in verse 37 of Matthew 27, we're told, Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews, mocking him. And in verse 38, two rebels were crucified with him, 
one on his right, one on his left. Convinced that's intentional language on the behalf of the author of Matthew. Just several chapters before, this mother's saying, Jesus, can my sons be at your right and your left when you come into your glory? And Jesus gone, sweet woman, you don't know what you're asking for. And that's not for me to decide. My father will decide who's at my right and left. And in a way that nobody's expecting, who is it? Not his most faithful followers, not his most astute students, but two thieves, two rebels that sit at his right and left. When this mother asks for her sons to be on Jesus' side, she's asking, can they be crucified next to you? And Jesus says, are you sure you guys want to do that? And they're like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And he's like, you don't know. The truth is, and I love, he goes back, you will drink of this cup. You will die with me and for me eventually. But this isn't what you think it is. And so Jesus is constantly going, I don't want people to get the wrong idea about my kingdom. I don't want people to hang around me for the wrong reasons. I don't want people to follow me and not understand where I'm taking them. And I think that was true then, and I think it's still true today. That Jesus is concerned that some people are hanging around him for the wrong reasons. What are some of those wrong reasons? Well, some people that day and today hang around Jesus because they're following the crowd. Because it's what the other people around them are doing. Mob psychology. This is where the flow's going, and so I'm going to jump on board. Some of us think that we're Christians because we've grown up around Christians. And we've always done this stuff. The reason we go to church is because we've always gone to church. So some follow the crowd. Others, we're told in one of the other gospel accounts, were there specifically at that parade because they were looking for miracles. They were looking for free bread. They were looking for Jesus to change the circumstances of their life to be more comfortable and easy. So they weren't there for Jesus. They were there for the things that, that they hoped he would change in their life. And so they decided to give him a shot. Some people follow or hang around Jesus because they don't want to feel guilty anymore. They don't want to feel bad about their sin. They don't want to feel covered in shame. And so they think that hanging around Jesus, going to church, or going on a mission trip or something will help them escape their feelings that they're not good enough or not doing well enough. And some people hang around Jesus, and we think many that day, because it makes them feel superior. Some people like to use Jesus to support their religious or political position. Like it's one thing to start with Jesus and let his politics work themselves out in your life. It's the other to start with your politics and then get Jesus on board with you. 
And throughout his ministry, and, uh, and especially here in this, in this crazy triumphal entry, Jesus is making it really hard. Unless you really want me and my kingdom, then this probably isn't for you. Now, what's ironic is many of the things I just mentioned are fulfilled in following Christ. Meaning, that mob psychology, that sense of belonging and community, we do find that in Christ. And the miraculous or the healing or the changing of our circumstances or the changing of us, we do get that in him too. And the absolution of our guilt, like the taking away of our sin and shame, we get that. And we also get the sense of dignity and belonging. But none of that can be the thing that causes us to follow Jesus. That's not the invitation. And so you have him going, I'm coming into town, I'm coming into your life, and I'm going to show up in ways you would never expect. And I'm going to reveal myself to you and carry out my plans in your life in a way you would never even think of asking for or looking for. And I'm here to heal and I'm here to bring change and transformation. I'm here to forgive. I'm here to restore. And my kingdom is real and it's coming and it's already here. But it's not what you think. Bonhoeffer famously says that when Christ bids a man to come, he bids him to come and die. The way of Jesus, the way of Palm Sunday, is the way to death. He knows that. The weeping king is marching to his death. And he says, follow me. Come with me. But if you do, you're going to have to die. And early followers of Jesus understood this. Guys like Paul would say, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ Jesus lives in me. And he would promise to us in his letters that if we share in the suffering of Christ, we will share in the glory of Christ. That if we trust Jesus with our whole selves to the point where the only word to describe that relationship is death to self, then and only then do we find true life. It's an amazing invitation with no guarantees how it's going to go other than the guarantee that it's going to involve some suffering because that's where Jesus goes from here. And like we talked about a few weeks ago on the suffering week, suffering is the thing we spend our whole lives avoiding. The one place where Jesus has promised to meet us is the thing we spend our entire life trying to, to avoid. And it could be that our greatest sin is the refusal to suffer, the refusal to die, the refusal to be inconvenienced, whether in just those daily annoying things of life and work and family, or in the big things of submitting our life vocation and our very soul to the work of Christ.
the one thing he promises. It's going to be hard, but that's where my kingdom is. That's where life is found. We'll invite you to come to the table this morning as we've been receiving communion every week during Lent. And as we come contemplating suffering, death, obviously, this broken bread, this cup representing his body, his blood poured out for us is an invitation to come and die that we may truly live. And I'm also going to invite you as you come to break off one of the uh, leaves on the palm branch and to take a moment and hold it in your hand. And <clears throat> These things were recently alive and they look alive, they're green and pretty, but the moment they're broken off, they begin all the more to die. One of the traditions that's been associated with Palm Sunday and the church calendar is that Christians would take palm branches or palm leaves on this Sunday and they would hold on to them through the course of the year and they would put them in a prominent place in their home, maybe on their desk or on their dashboard and watch the green leaf turn brown. Watch the living die. And uh, that's what I would invite you to do, to take a leaf in response to Jesus' invitation to come and die. And I want you to hold on to that leaf for a year. Put it on your fridge, on your desk, somewhere where you'll see it regularly. And it'll turn brown, it'll die, it'll get, it'll get hard. If you're actually a... Uh, you know, like a Pinteresting kind of person. Google how to make a little cross out of your palm leaf. I almost thought about having us do that today, but I already bought a minivan this week, so I couldn't go there. <laughs> but maybe you want to do that and make a little uh, cross out of the leaf and hold that somewhere in your home or in your life. And then the plan is, and what Christians have done for, for many years in traditions around the world, is bring those dead palm leaves the following year on Ash Wednesday, which is the first day of Lent, and they will be burned, and the ashes from the palm leaves will become the ashes that are imposed upon our foreheads to remind us that from dust we came and to dust we shall return. Now, for some of you, that freaks you out, sounds weird and Catholic-y, that sort of thing. You don't have to do it. But take a palm frond, and uh, reflect on this invitation and the places in your life where Jesus is inviting you to die, that you might truly live. Will you stand and pray with me? King Jesus, we acknowledge your rule and reign that has come and is coming. And we confess that you rarely are the kind of king we expect you to be even today. And we celebrate that you are bigger and beyond the systems and structures of this world. That you blow our minds. That you surprise us. You show up in the most unexpected ways and we celebrate that. We celebrate that you are here today, the risen and victorious, 
yet suffering servant. And we long to trust our entire self to you. Not just the little part of our life that we call religion or faith or spirituality, but you gave yourself for us and invite us to give ourselves in response. And so I thank you, we thank you for the costliness of your love, for the surprise of your kingdom, and for this incredible revolutionary movement that you've launched in the most unexpected way that has somehow reached even us. We celebrate that we get to be part of you and what you're doing in the world. And Lord Jesus, I pray that as we take your body and your blood into ourselves, as we receive you again this morning, we receive this invitation to die to ourselves and to find life in you. We pray that your spirit, the same spirit that empowered your life and ministry, would empower us as your people to live as ambassadors of this kingdom, that Antioch and your greater church in Bend would be an embassy of this otherworldly kingdom in Central Oregon. We pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth, in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, as in heaven. We pray that we would follow you as our king. Trust you as our ruler. That your politics would shape our life. That your love would flow through us. And that we would be a people of peace who seek peace and make peace as your kingdom people. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the gift of your life. And we respond in faith and in praise this morning. In Jesus' name.